welcome to the very first episode of Daniel's Core Talk. My name is Daniel Richardson, and I guess I'll just go ahead and do a quick, uh, I guess, explanation as to why this is the third uh, podcast that we've had under the TPS banner. Uh, plain and simple, I recently just, uh, well, not recently, I guess about a year ago, uh, had a kid, had my very first kid at the age of uh, 36, so I was 36, he was just born. Anyways, um, and so, you know, finding time to do these extra little projects, because the TPS YouTube channel was always meant to just be kind of a placeholder, something, you know, an outlet to do stuff while we're, you know, in between making movies or whatnot. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like there's always a lot of issues that come up while you're trying to make movies, so turned out we were using this YouTube channel quite a bit. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, you know, the YouTube channel, we had multiple shows on there, uh, mostly just me running my mouth about uh, horror films. There are other stuff, but you know, we'll get into that in a second. But then we also had podcasts, and the first one that we had was a TPS talk with my good friend uh, Josh Chaney, Jason Bell, and Ren Fields. And, uh, the, you know, four of us got together and just started talking horror, but I knew right off the bat it was going to be short-lived because at that point, my girlfriend Angel was pregnant with uh, Adrian, my son, and yeah, I didn't know what to expect having a kid in the house. Uh, I never had a baby in the house, so in my mind, I just went worst case scenario, kid be screaming the entire time, and I feel like that, you know, all three of these people, you know, my friends, they're not going to complain even if they are just having a miserable time. Like, I just imagine the four of us sitting around trying to talk about, you know, fucking some kind of Dracula movie, and then Adrian just screaming in the background. And they're too polite to be like, yeah, this ain't working. And so I just kind of put a kibosh on that after three episodes. Uh, I hated doing it, but, you know, it was what it was. Uh, turns out, though, uh, during that time uh, when Adrian was born, that kid slept a lot. Like, seriously, dude, just he, he, he'd sleep, wake up, he'd change his diaper, he'd eat, go back to bed. And then shit, wake up, we change him, feed him, and he go back to bed. Like the first six months or so, five or six months was just fucking incredible. I missed those five or six months, I'll be honest with you. Anyways, um, so I just realized I'm doing a podcast without the video for the first time. Like we always did videos on the other podcasts. So like the smile and the sarcasm may not come across. It may just sound like a psychotic guy just yelling into the void anyways uh but no so during those you know early years of his birth i was able to keep doing the youtube shows and uh me and josh actually came back with another podcast it was uh the half hour bullshit and we ran that for about five episodes and then that's when adrian started getting older and he was kind of running around getting into things and unfortunately we could only record you know during the day because me and Josh both have full-time jobs. And so it just, it wasn't, you know, wasn't viable anymore. Couldn't do it, logistically. So anyways, you know, we, so we canceled that show. And uh, I kept hanging on to the YouTube channel as long as I could. Or the, the, the shows on the YouTube channel as long as I could. Uh, a lot of those shows uh, I'd record at night, uh, as I'm doing right now. Uh, and anyways, um it got to a point where I was just getting way too tired because every show, the shows that were running at that point, uh, I had a show called uh, Journey Through the Dark Side, which uh, me and my friend Simon would uh, chronologically uh, review every Undertaker match he had on pay-per-view. And uh, that was the show I was really wanting to hang on to the most because we did actually didn't record here. We recorded down at his place. Uh, unfortunately, it just seemed like, you know, because he also, like, everybody I associate with has full-time jobs. Like, we're all fucking working. And so, anyways, uh, you know, it got to a point where, you know, he was kind of, you know, backing out on certain episodes, and I had to go home alone. And that was a show I didn't really want to do alone. Like, that was a show that was designed for me and him. Uh, so, anyways, I kind of threw in the towel on that uh, until we kind of, you know, calm down and figure out what, you know, get on the same schedule, which is tough. Like I said, I, you know, I'm not one to try to use Adrian as an excuse, but you know, my first kid, he's only one right now. And so, yeah, it's a, it's one of those things where it's just like, it's hard to find any kind of, you know, spare time. And I can't expect, uh, you know, Simon to wait on me, you know, like clear your schedule, make room for my schedule. No, you can't do that. You got to work together. And you know, that dude's busy as well. So it's just like, you know, we had to kind of slow that down. So hopefully Bill will pick that up at some point, but you know, right now just not in the cards. 
The other two shows I did solo was uh, the uh, Shutter Slaughterhouse, which was a show that because like you know I watch a lot of movies on Shutter, and I was like you know what I want to talk about these movies, but I don't want to talk to about them with so uh, it was just basically me just reviewing every movie I watched on Shutter that way. <laughs> New old didn't matter, just whatever I watched on Shutter, I'd come out and talk. The problem with that came was I was starting to watch less and less movies because refer back to Adrian. <laughs> So uh, the only time you get to watch movies is at night now. You don't get as much in as I used to. So it just became like a, uh, well, I'm not really watching a lot of these movies now. So it kind of makes less sense to, you know, make these. And then the other show I did was the Retro Horror Academy. And in this show, it was uh, just me talking. But I was uh, chronologically critiquing and, uh, excuse me, raking, ranking, sorry, uh, got a little bit of indigestion on this slide. This is a very uh, unprofessional podcast. You'll learn that very quickly. Anyways, uh, I was ranking uh, horror films from the inception of horror films. So I went back to you know 1896, the very first horror film, House of the Devil or The Haunted Castle. You know, it goes by multiple titles, but uh, just kind of reviewing them year by year and just kind of taking a look at the look or at the year in horror with each of those. And so that was kind of the big thing I was doing then. Again, uh, the Turbo ran into, and really not so much watching the movies because these were films that I don't know. They're not that complex. They're old, uh, so I was able to watch these on my break or you know just when I got you know spare time. The problem with this was I did a lot of editing on the shows. Like if you go back on our YouTube channel and look up the you know Retro Horror Academy episodes, you know there's you know use a lot of footage and there's a lot of editing went into a lot of work, and I was getting to a point where I just didn't have time to work. And so where it all kind of came to an end was uh, we went on kind of a seasonal break. I always kind of take the end of the year off. Uh, so usually October or November. And I, I, it's probably around November when I took off this past year. Uh, went ahead and just took a little break. Promised to come back for, with both shows, Shutter Slaughterhouse and uh, Retro Horror Academy. Uh, however, it was during that time that we started filming a short film uh, for our other YouTube segment called TPS Shorts which is just a bunch of short films we shoot um, exclusively for YouTube. Like, they don't do the festival circuit or anything like that. And these were just meant to, you know, some fun time killers to do and just something to do, again, just between real shoots. And when I started doing that, I don't know, the itch to get back out and, you know, start filming again was hitting me. And our current project right now is a film called The uh, Copperville Chronicles. And this thing has been... Since we stopped, or so since we wrapped up and did post production and premiered Unspeakable Acts back in uh, 2018, we set upon doing Copperville Chronicles. And in classic TPS fashion, uh, yeah, we just haven't got around to doing it uh, for various reasons. Uh, there's a lot of start and stop moments. We had multiple directors. It's, it's supposed to be, it still is an anthology series, but initially it was going to have multiple directors from TPS. And just kind of one by one, people were kind of backing out for various reasons. We had one person move, and then one person left the company. And so it got to a point where, and then um, Josh, he filmed his segment, but then he wanted to add more to it. And as I'm watching it, and I'm like, man, I hate the fact that he's kind of waiting for us. But at the same time, he keeps kind of building this, I don't know, it's, it's going to be his masterpiece. It really is. And so he's kind of fleshing it out and he's going to turn it out. I mean, I, I think it's still going to be a short, but it's going to be a longer short now. And so, you know, we kind of discussed it and I was like, man, I don't want to be the one holding you back here. I was like, you know, take this, run with it, you know, we'll still promote it. We'll still produce it like you do all the other uh, TPS shorts, you know, I'll do my best to, you know, promote. that's the thing. We're really good at shorts. I noticed, uh, Unspeakable Acts did not get a whole lot of acclaim. We got into one film festival and then, uh, we did get reviewed. It was a, wasn't a great review, although I enjoyed it because I think any press is good press and I'm an egomaniac enough that, you know, even when I'm getting kind of slammed in a review, I, I find the positives of it. Uh, apparently I was the guy's favorite, uh, character and he said it was a weird fucking movie. And I was like, well, he's not lying about that. So, uh, But no, so that was really the only praise we got, except for we did get a uh, mention on uh, The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, which highlighted my fucking life right there. It's number two. Obviously, the birth of my son's number one. You got to say that. But close fucking second is uh, having Joe Bob Briggs talk about me and my movie on his show. Uh, I wrote a letter in. Did not expect it to get read on air. I just wrote to him. And I sent him my movies because he um, he was all about uh, he did this uh, 
big speech, you know, his keep rolling speech. Another thing I urge you guys to go on YouTube and, you know, check out. Keep rolling. And uh, anyways, it just inspired me to write him about, you know, the ups and downs of us making unspeakable acts. So, uh, you know, I wrote him a letter and then me and Simon, you know, basically autographed some posters for him and Darcy. And then at that time we had two DVDs that we had unspeakable acts and we had a public domain dungeon DVD. Uh, I won't go into that right now, obviously, but anyways, we sent those to him. So yeah, he read the letter online and I was like, holy shit. And we had a, a nice little spike in sales after that. You know, people were very curious about the movie. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Joe Bob. You know, I can, I can never thank you enough for that, but, but that was pretty much it. The, the film itself didn't really go on to much acclaim. However, we've had really good luck, uh, well, what I consider good luck, uh, with our short films. I will always be the first to admit like, you know, once again, we are, I'm, I'm from Bedford, Indiana. My entire crew is from Southern Indiana. We're stretched across a couple of counties and that's it. Um, but no, we, you know, we make no budget films in the sense of no, like literally there's no money going into these hardly. Uh, what little bit of money we do gather up for them, you know, it's cheap stuff we're buying. We're going to the Dollar Tree to buy, you know, our props or makeup or whatever. So, you know, we're underground. We have bad audio equipment. We got, you know, poor cameras and I'll be the first to admit like we you know as far as like the look of these films go aesthetically yeah they're shit they're dog shit uh, it works for those people acts only because it was meant to be found footage um, so you know it, it, it can look pretty shabby but the rest of the films are you know straight up films like they're meant to be like you know but that you know clearly you know if you look at them before you give them a chance, you're going to turn them off because you're going to be like, wow, this is shit. This is clearly, you know, some films were shot just straight on a, you know, phone. Other ones, we, you know, we have equipment, but, you know, not very good. Either way, you know, that's just, that's just the reality of it. But some of these shorts have broken through in big ways. And, uh, you know, Entropy got into a couple of festivals. Uh, so did uh, Chris Cage, Modern Day Van Helsing. But the two that really kind of broke out, uh, first was Self-Isolation, a short film I did initially for the, uh, oh, uh, Corman uh, Quarantine Film Festival, or, you know, the title something like that. Uh, Roger Corman, director. And the only reason I even entered into his uh, film festival was I was like, I just want to die knowing that Roger Corman watched one of my films. Like that's it. That's the to me that was the the prize. But at the same time, this other festival came out with you know similar rules to that. Because I mean, there's a whole list of rules of you know had to be shot on the phone. Because this is during the pandemic, like the initial shutdown. Uh, I was home for three weeks, you know, during the shutdown. So it was during that time. And of course, you know, it had to just be a film that you can shoot on your phone under two minutes in your house with only people you know from your house, whatever. And so. We did it. We we shot this thing, and like I said, I submitted it to two different ones. I shot to the Roger Corman one, which I didn't, you know, even rank on that one. But the other one I, I did, I got a lot of positive feedback, uh, not just from people who left comments on the video. Uh, I got uh, some uh, feedback from horror movie insiders, like literal horror community people. Kane Hodder, fucking you know, fucking Kane Hodder. Uh, for those who somehow don't know who Kane Hodder is, he was uh, Jason Voorhees in Friday 13th, 7 through 10. Um, said my movie was weird and clever. Fucking love you, Kane. Thank you very much. Uh, I had so many different people. Uh, Debbie Rashawn gave. Uh, she's a scream queen that did a lot of trauma films uh, and does a lot, you know, other you know stuff. Uh, she you know went on. You know she loved the you know the twist ending at the end, and you know she just. Absolutely loved it. You know, big blur. Like she gave us like a big paragraph, um, which I put into a trailer. I put all these people's uh, little quotes into a trailer to uh, promote self isolation. It was shortly after that, and I, I should mention too. It, you know, it was uh, placed uh, in the other in the other film festival is called the uh, Quarantine Short Film Competition, and we placed in the uh, top twelve. Uh, and we also I got nominated for a most clever film, so I thought that was really awesome. Immediately after that, I was contacted by this guy who was at the One Reeler short film competition. And this was a legit, like, like this, you know, I'm not saying these other competitions weren't legit, but they were more like a regional thing. This was like a legit fucking uh, IMDb qualifying uh, film festival. And our film won, uh, got a special mention award. And I was fucking thrown. They even sent me a medal through the mail, which uh, is hung on the wall, wall right now. I'm looking at it. Uh, and that was at that time I was like, holy shit, like, you know, we ain't gonna get any higher than this. 
Uh, and then from there, he got you know you know put into other uh, competitions as well. Didn't do as well. I mean, I, that was the height of you know our success with uh, self isolation. But then, you know, less than a year later, my girlfriend completes her film, Attack of the Giant Ladybug, and we start sending it in there. And again, this was a film, and this is nothing against it because it is the only uh, TPS production that we've done that I did not direct. I've either directed or co-directed all the other ones before that one. But uh, Attack the Giant Ladybug was the only one that uh, I was just producer and star of. And did the editing, you know, all the other stuff that goes with, you know, independent filmmaking, but or underground filmmaking, I guess I should say. Uh, but anyways, you know, it was my girlfriend, you know, she wrote and directed it. And it wasn't that I didn't have any faith in this thing. I have, you know, I love every single film we've churned out. But I'm also very realistic. You know, these are little no-budget whatever films. And so, you know, you just start to say, try to stay very realistic. It's like, okay, guys, the only people who's going to watch this is, you know, our close friends and family. You never expect it to catch an audience. Uh, and this thing went out and was doing just that. It was accepted to all these different fel- uh, film festivals. Uh, it won a special mention award. Uh, it was Gravedigger Days Anthology Film Fest or something like that. Uh, won a special mention award. Uh, she actually got put in uh, his movie that he released. It was basically just like the winners of the competition put together in a uh, anthology film. Uh, she got a special thanks on that. Uh, and then uh, recently we uh, attended the, uh, or we didn't attend physically, our film attended the uh, MoCo International Film Festival. And it won uh, two awards. It got uh, an award for uh, oh, Best Experimental Film. And then uh, me and Josh each got an award for a Best Producer. So it's just like, holy shit, again, I don't expect any, like, I didn't expect any of this. Uh, especially because, I mean, it's, it, you know, to describe Attack the Giant Ladybug, it's a Z level monster movie. Uh, not a B flick, or B flick, it's a Z flick. Like, this movie really is just, you know, it's Z grade all around. But, you know, it doesn't mean we didn't put a lot of hard work into it and a lot of love and attention. And it's just really great that it's getting. Is getting the accolades and the attention. I believe it. You know, it does deserve uh, more than it deserves. Really, at this point, I think it's you know, it's definitely blew past my expectations or wants. Like, if we would just got you know, thirty views on YouTube and people going, "Hey, nice job," that is what I thought it would deserve. But the fact that it's going on to film festivals and winning awards—that's just fucking crazy, right there. So, anyways, the point I was trying to make. So. You know, when I told Josh, I was like, "Listen, man, just release your short uh, independently of that. You know, we'll release it as a, you know its own separate entity outside the Copperfield Chronicles." Uh, he agreed. He thought that'd be a you know better idea, and this way he can expand more on it and doesn't have to fit into the framework that we got Copperfield Chronicles. You know, doing. Uh, my girlfriend's on her second film as well. Uh, right now, we're just kind of waiting for the you know we're it's winter time, so we're just kind of waiting for the weather to pick back up to do the second half of the, of the short, but. Uh, her short was a. Uh, we initially had the title uh, uh, "Jesus Christ versus the Easter Bunny." Uh, we changed it uh, not because of that. We've uh, we had a lot of things fall through. Like this was kind of a one of those disaster things that we uh, tried the film and just we had a lot of no shows. We had a lot of people not show up. It, it, it was just it's been one of those grueling uh, filming experiences. But we were able to kind of cobble together a second story, like the stuff we couldn't pull off, you know, due to this. We're going to be able to pull off a different, a, a secondary story here. And uh, she kind of wants to do it, you know, again, outside of this. So I was like, hey, no problem. You know, once again, she's already batted a thousand on her first film. So fuck it. Let's let's try this. So uh, we're it's still, you know, we don't have a working, we got a working title. And that's about it. Uh, Bad Friday is what we're calling it, but uh, again, that's kind of a working title. I'm not sure if we're going to settle on that or not, but either way, uh, she's, you know, wanting to push forward on that, you know, solo as well. So that just kind of left me and this other filmmaker and uh, on Comfortable Chronicles. And so I kind of talked to him and told him, you know, I'm you know, planning on kind of just the way I have different ideas now for Copperfield Chronicles, so I'm going to go one direction with it. I told him, you know, if you still want to do yours, because, I mean, I hadn't really heard from this guy in a while, uh, and I was like, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not assuming you quit or anything, but, you know, I hadn't heard anything, and he's like, no, no, he still wants to do it, but uh, he said he's cool doing his solo as well, so I decided to take Copperfield Chronicles, and I'm going to take uh, four of my short, you know, story, uh, film ideas and cobble them together into this film. So, and I feel like, for me personally, I kind of like anthology films uh, from a single director, a la um, Creepshow, the movie. Uh, you know, George Romero did that, and then you got you know Trick or Treat, 
Uh, Michael Dorger did that. And again, you get one vision, and even if the stories are kind of uneven, visually it's all one vision. And now that you know we're kind of whittling down on these directors, I was like, you know what, I, I want to move forward and you know do this solo. So that's where we're at right now, and I'm currently in the middle of writing. So once we uh, once I'm starting writing this thing, it just became clear, like, you know, I don't have time now to do these other shows. Like, if I want to, you know, get this script done before springtime so we can, you know, start shooting, uh, you know, reshooting the Copperville Chronicles, get that, you know, reset up, you know, I might not have time to do these YouTube things. So, I made the decision to kind of just cut these channels out. Uh, occasionally, I'll, you know, we'll still do little shorts or whatever to throw on here. But, you know, again, it's just like, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, however, the need for me to just talk... I didn't, you know, I didn't realize how great that was. Speaking of which, let me have a little drink real quick. But the need for me to just kind of shout into the void about horror films, it's just too great. It ju- it's just too great. And so I decided, you know what? I still want to do this. Uh, you know, our channel, this, uh, you know, our YouTube channel, it's getting a lot of hits. But they're not watching the, the shows. They're watching more like the behind-the-scenes stuff, the little mockumentary. I mean, a couple episodes will kind of take off i think for the wrong reasons um the two biggest uh, like i did a show before the horror movie review with daniel richardson and it seems like the two biggest shows or the episodes that you know are just dominating as far as views go uh is a uh, oh love letters of a portuguese nun which is sexploitation uh so of course people are going to tune in for that as opposed to horror and then the other one is like the night child and i think the weird thing about that movie is the movie, I don't think it's even supposed to be in the U.S. I was able to find a bootleg copy online from like a Russian site or whatever. But uh, the big controversy around this movie is there's a it just it depicts a scene, a, a you know, implied sex scene between a full grown woman and a young child, and the kid's like literally a child. Like it's not like you know some eighteen nineteen year old who's just really small for his age. Like no, this is a kid, and there's nothing explicit in the scene, but it does show him and her together, like together, when she's nude. Uh, there was no, like, him on one side, you know, and then they cut to her. No, no, it's like they're in the frame together. And so I'm guessing it's like, nope, that's too weird, and we're not doing that. And so anyways, I, you know, I reviewed it, and it, like, took off. And I was like, really? Like, this one? Like, this skeezy one is the one that, you know, gets the views? But, uh, no, our channel really only gets views on uh, a lot of our behind-the-scenes stuff. Our shorter videos, uh, our short films, you know, they're the one that kind of pick up the views. So... You know, again, this in our podcast never did much on YouTube. They did, you know, okay on Anchor and Spotify and all that stuff. But as far as actual, you know, on YouTube, nah, no one's really listening to this. And there's no guarantee anybody's gonna listen to this, like I said. But I just, I can't not talk horror or horror movies. And so even if no one's listening out there, I'm okay with that. I'm just gonna upload these just as like self therapy and just, uh, as a exhaust to get all this, you know, horror out of my, you know, mouth. So, take another drink. Sorry. Uh, that's the downside about doing it solo. You got a partner doing podcast with it. You can take a drink while he's talking. But so, anyways, uh, what to expect from this podcast? I'm sorry, it's a 23, you know, minute intro here, but um, really, there is no set parameter. Um, I still kind of want to push forward. In fact, this episode will have. Uh, the episode I was going to shoot for the Retro Horror Academy, I will just pretty much give a brief rundown of that on this one. And then uh, decide, you know, I'll probably, if I get time, uh, if I, you know, if I get time to watch anything on Shudder, I will do like a Shudder Spotlight where I'll just, you know, maybe do one movie a week. Uh, if I get, if I'm, even if I get time to do that, I'll try to do one movie a week. Uh, but no, uh, other than that, I'm just going to talk, you know, news, Whatever you know, if I did see any other movies that wasn't Shutter related either, I'll you know I'll talk to them. Uh, just kind of run my mouth, and uh, I'll aim for thirty minutes, uh, but definitely won't go over an hour. So between thirty to sixty minutes of you know a week. Uh, after the kid goes to bed and I get my supper in me, I come in here to my little office and I cut these things right here. So, mm. so with that said, uh, let's get into you know. Let's talk about first. I guess we do our little shutter spotlight here. Uh, last week I watched a film. They uh, they're really pushing hard right now. Uh, their big theme, I guess, this month is uh, folklore. 
movies like the you know the Wicker Man and shit like that um, that has kind of a folksy you know urban legend kind of you know vibe, mostly woodland creatures and shit, Wendigo stuff like that uh, type horror films. And uh, that's their big thing. And they have a documentary on there right now. And I'm blanking on the name. I'm sorry. This is one of those I'm just I'm more shooting from the hip. I don't have anything in front of me, you know, written down. Uh, but they got a documentary right now that's like an entire, like, exploration of, you know, full core. Uh, which I do plan on checking out eventually when I get time. Didn't get a chance to watch it. But I did watch a movie called The Blood on Satan's Claw. Uh, the Blood on Satan's Claw is uh, basically it's a small... Uh, English village, and this is like, I don't know, 1500s, 1600s probably, maybe even a little later, maybe maybe 1700s. Uh, they're dressed like pilgrims. Everybody's like a fucking pilgrim in this movie. Uh, so anyways, but uh, basically, uh, devil worshipping becomes the new fad among the kids there. Like every, you know, youth, child, teenager is a, a devil worshipper now. And of course, they're getting others, you know, join their group, but it's, it's kind of sweeping the, uh, the, uh, the village, you know, the entire countryside or whatever. Um, so I had no expect. I didn't know anything about this. I just know they got all this folk horror up right now, and I was like, well, I'll just check this one. And I felt like, you know, of all the things I saw, this is the one that looked. Uh, I don't know. This looked. This looked the most interesting. And it had the best title: "Blood on Satan's Claw." Come on, like, what's not great about that? The funny thing is, you know, after I watched it, because that's kind of my thing. Every time I watch a movie, I always go to Wikipedia and IMDb and look at the trivia page. I just like to, you know, find out all the little facts or whatever about these films and like this movie bombed when it came out but in time it really developed like a cult following and now it's like considered like one of the pioneering films in uh the folk horror you know whatever uh renaissance there in the uh late 70s early 80s and i don't get it i'm sorry i was not a big fan of this movie um, to me, it just it jumped all over the place. It felt very uneven in areas, and I think the reason for that is initially it was supposed to be anthology. They were going to do like three different stories, and then just have them all kind of you know have a, a common theme. And the producers were like, "No, you're not doing that. Just put them all together, make it work." And I feel like that's definitely the the biggest thing about this movie is just like I don't know, just it jumps around too much. It's just very oddly paced. And then, like, it just, I don't know, it seems rushed at times as well. Like, there's just, a, you know, there's, like, a scene where, I can, you know, a guy's, like, he's up in his room and he's having this hallucination or whatever. And then he just, like, wakes up normal, like, in the village, like, square or whatever. And, you know, the kids are, you know, the Satanists have, you know, risen and everything. And I don't know, it just, it's just like, what? Like, can we not flesh this out? Uh, same thing with, you know, the, the character of the preacher of the town. Like, I don't, it's, it's weird because I can't get a handle on it. Like, is he supposed to be good or bad? And maybe that's the point. Maybe he's supposed to be some kind of gray area. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, uh, oh, Witchfinder General. Uh, you know, Vincent Price was, you know, hunting down witches, but you find out he's very crooked, very corrupt. Uh, you know, doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, you know, uh, taking advantage of these young girls, torturing them, even, you know, he knows they're not witches. And you feel like that's how this guy is. But then, like, by the end, he's, you know, he's like, he's a hero. And it's like, well, not really. Like, he seems like he's kind of a dick. And he does seem like he's going to abuse his power. Like, he, just the way he was treating his nephew and his new wife. And I don't know. It just, I don't know. I wasn't huge on this movie. I guess I should just say that. Um, the, the biggest thing, I guess, you know, about this film uh, also is just that, like, the ending is so, it's again, it feels rushed because, like, at one point, you know, there's this big ceremony, but you don't really see them, like, raise Satan. They're, you know, you're, you're going to bring the demon or the devil or whatever it's supposed to be. It's just, like, the heroes show up, and Satan's already there. And it's like, what? And then they, just, like, they kill him easily. He gets some, sorry, spoilers alert. Uh, they, they impel him pretty quickly and then put him down. It's just like, well, it seems like a lot of build for nothing. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't huge on it. Uh, either way, though, it is considered a classic, and my point of view has always been watch a movie. Just watch it. You know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, don't watch, no, 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 watch it, check it out for yourself, you may like it. A lot of people do, apparently, just, you know, just wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, but yeah, I don't know, wasn't feeling it. Has a lot of nudity in it, though, I'm always for that. Um, and yeah, there's a scene where, like, this woman gets, or this uh, young girl gets raped, and I don't know, like, I couldn't, because, like, I'll, you know, a lot, of, a lot of white people in this movie, <laughs> whole cast is white, a lot of honkies, uh, and a lot of them look alike, and so... 
I couldn't tell if like if this is like her dead brother back from the life assaulting her. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find anything one way or another, so I don't know if it was or wasn't. But like you know, she has a dead brother early on. He gets killed in a pretty. And that's the thing. Like, you know, there are certain scenes that are pretty creepy, and that was one of them. Like you know, when they played this game with him, I really dug that scene. And then this sexual assault scene and the build up to it, I really dug it. And there's a couple other scenes that you know, they're, you know, the bill's nice, but just like all together, just I don't know, it just didn't click for me. But yeah, at one point, like this random guy with a head wound shows up, and I was like, well, wait a minute, is this the brother that just died? If it is, how's he come? I don't know. And then like how they chose who's in the group and who's not, because they all get infected by uh, the devil's mark, which is like a patch of fur that just grows on you randomly, and. But they end up sacrificing that one girl. They don't say why she gets killed. No one else did. I don't know. The Blood on Satan's Claw. That's my shutter spotlight for the week. And honestly, you can move past it. Uh, It was given four out of five uh, skulls from the uh, shutter community. Uh, I'm giving it two out of five. Like I said, it has some okay moments. but it's a low two out of five I'm giving it. I feel like I should give it one. But I'll I'll be nice. I'll give it two skulls out of five. But yeah, I just... uh, not feeling it. Just this was not feeling it. So I guess now I can kind of move over to the retro horror academy uh, segment, if you will. Um, so what this show basically was, like I mentioned earlier, I go through year by year, uh, you know, break down what happened that year in horror, and then go ahead and uh, oh, you know, rank the movies, and then usually the top three, well not usually every time, the top three films would get uh, the awards, you know. The Bronze Skull, the Silver Skull, and the Golden Skull. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the whole gimmick behind it. Uh, funny thing was, I didn't actually have physical trophies for these uh, movies uh, until the end of the season. And back in November, because I, I bought these skulls, these ceramic skulls from Dollar Tree, and then I bought these little wooden bases from Joanne Fabrics, or Walmart. I can't remember, bought from somewhere. But anyways, um, excuse me. I uh, bought these and then painted them up, you know, gold, silver, bronze. And then they were going to be like the physical trophies. I was going to hold them up like, yeah, the winner of the bronze skull is this film. And then, like I said, we, we cut it out. And now we're just doing this uh, via podcast with no picture. So, yeah, I got these uh, silver, I got these uh, go, this golden, silver, and bronze skull that I guess I'll just display randomly in the house. Uh, I don't know, I'll probably find a use for them later down the road. But anyway, just kind of, I thought that's kind of funny. So let's let's get into. Uh, I do urge you know anybody who wants to know more about you know these early horror movies, uh, check out my Retro Horror Academy uh, playlist on the YouTube channel. Uh, yes, or you know wherever you're listening. Um, if you don't, you know if you don't know, you know all of our uh, social media links are on uh, Anchor. And then, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on YouTube, you can just you know go to our page. But uh, yeah, uh, I, you know, I covered you know twenty something or yeah twenty plus years, twenty four years of horror there. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. I feel like a lot of people should know about these movies. I'm not saying they're great. I'm just saying that you know these were the foundation on which horror was built on. So I really think that you know what, get, give them a check, check them out, at least inform yourself about them. You may find something you like. You never know. Uh, I was surprised to find, you know, some movies here that I really do genuinely like. Like, I will end up going out and buying them because I actually like these films. You don't have to buy these either. A lot of these are public domain right now, or all of them are public domain right now. So you can find these usually on YouTube or, you know, the, uh, oh, the Internet Archive, I think is what it is. This is where they have a lot of, you know, public domain music, videos, movies, stuff like that. Uh, anyways, you can find this shit anywhere. But uh, I wouldn't mind. I, I, they did a Dante's Inferno, and I would love to get that uh, from 1911. Uh, apparently, uh, Tangerine Dream did an entire like new score for it, and I'm just like, you know what? Yeah, that's that's something I would literally uh, invest some money into. So, um, yeah. So it, let's get to 1920. Uh, you know, at this point now, this is the era of uh, German expressionism, and uh, you know, anybody who's ever seen a Tim Burton movie, you know what uh, German expressionism and that gothic look is. You know, lots of points, lots of doorways that aren't perfect rectangles. You know, the windows, they're not squares, they're rhombuses, you know. Uh, you got roads that just kind of, like, you know, you, you, like from a perspective, you know, a road will always, you know, the, the, the side of the road will always kind of slant inwards. You know, you get this little narrow thing, but in a... Uh, and these German expression, you know, films, it's like you're already in like the narrow part of the road. It's, it's Gotham City. It's fucking Gotham City from 
Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. That's exactly what it is. So, anyways, um, that was kind of you know the big thing that kind of broke out this year, and it would get a lot of these uh, German uh, filmmakers noticed, and they would get you know called into Hollywood, and their careers would just kind of explode there. Um, you know, the biggies that they always talk about uh, from this era, from this year especially, is uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Uh, Caligari and uh, the Gollum. Uh, doc, uh, cab, or sorry, the uh, rewind here. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that's probably the big one. Like That's the biggest example uh, and probably the most, you know, best use of it. Like, I mean, there really is no other film that really will compare as far as look and style uh, of the German expressionism than this one. Uh, and this thing uh, came out, and it's weird because when I looked it up, it was just like such conflicting things. Like some sources were like, this thing was a huge hit right out the gate. And then others were like, no, it wasn't that big at all. It caught on later, you know, later on, you know, it would catch fire, kind of become the first cult film, uh, which I think one of the uh, critics, or re- like, you know, newer critics in a retrospective said, like, it was the first cult film. And it's just like, but was it, though, if it was a big international hit right out the gate? I don't know. So anyways, um, The Golem's another one that, you know, had that kind of look and feel and vibe to it. Uh, the Gollum is actually the only version of the Gollum trilogy that, or full version, that's out. The first uh, movie, Der Gollum, um, it's lost. I don't know, you know, the film's damaged. It, you know, just considered lost of time. That's a lot. That's a lot of what I'm coming across when I'm looking at these early films. I'm hearing about like all these great films, but they're all lost, you know. So just one of those tragic things. Uh, the sequel, uh, The Gollum and the Dancing Girl. Uh, it too is mostly lost. I think there's like a reel left, and you can find it on online. But uh, yeah, the Gollum's the only one that really survived. And then I believe it, this the full title is like the Gollum and how he came to be. So these were the two big heavy hitters coming out uh, this year. But actually, we got several films to actually look at. Uh, this is actually the biggest episode, or would have been the biggest episode of the Retro Horror Academy. Uh, so here it is. We got six films that we're gonna rank. And uh, I'll start with number six. The number six film is a film called The Penalty. Uh, this is uh, Lon Chaney. And actually, I think this is like his first big film. This is his breakout film. And a uh, little horror film, or not even my horror film, sorry. That's why it's ranked number six. I want to express that right now. Uh, how I get these um, nominations, these you know, these lists is uh, first I'll go on Wikipedia and they just got like, you know, breakdown year by year, a list of all the horror films that came out that year or take a Sarah horror film. So then I go to, uh, I cross reference that with IMDb cause I'm a big fucking nerd when it came to this uh, channel, uh, or this, uh, concept. And I make sure that they actually have two things. One, the horror, um, genre listed for it. Cause a lot of times you'll go over there and it didn't say it's a horror film. And I'm like, well, you know what? If you can't, cr- you know, cross both these things off your list, you're not going to be put in there. And so, it must have horror as its genre listing on IMDb. And then secondly, um, I look at the release date. It has to have like, you know, a f- complete release date. Because a lot of times you'll find that these, you know, shorts are just kind of like cobbled together. And no one knows, any, like, you know, when it came out. And I'm like, that don't seem fair. Like, I want, I want you know, I want an actual tr- track. I want a trace. I want, you know, a record of like, you know, when this film came out, what country it came out in, all that stuff. And sometimes you find it and sometimes you don't. And I'm just like, you know what? It, to me, it didn't feel like a real release then. No one knows when it came out. The funny thing is, is, and it may be, you know, you may be asking yourself like, well, come on, Daniel, that seems a little unfair. A long time ago, records get destroyed, whatever. But it's like the very first horror film, it has a release date. There are, you know, reviews of it there's you know a record of this film so it's just like no if the first one can pull it off the rest of them should be able to follow suit so that's kind of my whole thing and then like i said as long as it was released that year i put it on the list and we move on uh the other bad thing is i have to be able to watch this film too and a lot of these films are lost so can't get a copy of it then you can't get in the thing i uh, the funny thing about that is the golem i had to take both of them out because the first two because there just wasn't a full version of it anywhere online uh, at all. And so it's just like, unfortunately, these were considered great films when they came out. 
but they have fallen by the wayside. So anyways, the penalty, getting back on track, it's about this guy who's a double amputee who rises uh, through the ranks. Uh, you know, he's a criminal mastermind in San Francisco, and he's you know about to bring his uh, you know master plan how he's going to loot and rob San Francisco blind, while also getting revenge on the doctor who amputated his legs. So, the first thing I got to tell you about this film is, uh, like I said, Lon Chaney's in it's his first major film. Lon Chaney, who is a master of uh, makeup, horror makeup, that's what he's known for. And even though this ain't a horror film per se, even though it has the IMDb listing as horror, when you watch it, it's not really a horror film. It's more of a crime drama. But uh, to achieve this double amputation thing, he custom made like these buckets with like a little thing cut out of them. And he literally, like he put his knees, like he sank down into it. But like he bent his legs, his bottom part of his legs, back and then strapped him in a harness. So like he was bent like a fucking, you know, convertible sofa, you know, like literally his legs are folded up straight up his back and attached to him. And he was lowered into these buckets and then they put these pants on him so you can't even tell. And they got, (coughs) (coughs) sorry. Mm. Um, sorry, just COVID, we're fine. Anyways, he's got, you know, his legs up to his back, they're got a harness, he has a big overcoat, he's always wearing an overcoat, so that helps hide it. But when you actually see him moving around on set, it's fucking amazing. Like, it really is. I'm just like, I'm blown away by how awesome this effect looks. Like, for 1920, you can't even see, you can't tell, you, you just can't tell. And thing is, though, it was so hard for him to keep doing that, that he could only film for like 14 minutes at a time. And then they had to cut and then get him out of there and he had to go rest up. And then he'd come back, get back in it and shoot for another 14 minutes. And he could only do it in short bursts like that. And it's like, God damn, like talk about being a, you know, just a master of your craft and taking it so professionally. I don't know. That to me just blows me away. So when I watch this film, it honestly, it's probably my favorite film. From this six, but I only rank it, or sorry, the Academy uh, only ranks it low because it's really not a horror film. And I just kind of feel like, ah, uh, I know we're maybe splitting hairs when it comes to these later ones. I don't know, but to me, it just, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, so, anyways, that's, you know, it has this incredible makeup job. Uh, he looks great. Although it's funny that, so how the movie starts off is uh, a doctor makes a mistake. He was trying to, uh, I forget, the kid has some kind of illness, and he thought he had to amputate the legs. And so he ends up amputating both of them. And then another doctor shows up and is like, what the hell did you do? Don't, you know, you weren't supposed to amputate the legs. And, but the other doctor kind of covers for the doctor because he's young, and he's like, you got a bright future ahead of you. And so he's like, we're going to, I'm going to, you know, I'll clarify that, yes, you were supposed to amputate, so it's okay. But the kid overhears it. So the kid grows up, and of course, as he tries to tell him, like, I overheard them. They chopped my legs off for no reason. The doctors kind of work together and are like, oh no, you know, it's the anesthetic. He He's hallucinating that he hurt us, you know. And so this kid grows up just hate-filled and he turns into Lon Chaney and becomes a criminal mastermind. The problem is, he's like, when we get to that, you know, when we jump ahead, you know, to where we're at now, he's already the boss. He's already like this criminal mastermind. I was like, I would, the, to me, the better movie would have been Seeing his rise to the top, I would love to see this, you know, double amputee guy where everybody is, you know, and they're too afraid to even make fun of him. In an un-PC time like the 20s, nobody called him a cripple. Like, they would say it behind his back, but they were even afraid to do that because, like, what if he overheard it? He would straight up murder you. And I'm like, I want to see the viciousness of this guy, right? you know, his rise to the top, but they really kind of yada yada over that. I don't know. The movie's great, though. Uh, I was really surprised how much I liked it. Uh, while he's, you know, getting his, you know, crew together, and he's got this ridiculous plan to have everybody kind of like rob these banks at the exact same time and loot at the exact same time. Like he's got his own little like underground army built up. He also ends up um, hooking up with this, uh, or didn't hook up with her. Sorry, there's a young girl. It turns out to be the daughter of the doctor who amputated on him. Right, so he ends up. Uh, getting a job, uh, being her model, you know, and he's modeling for her, and she's a sculptor, and she's making 
uh, it's like the only horror tie-in, I guess, was she's making a sculpture of the devil, and she's using him as a template. And anyways, so his plan is to get close to her and then, you know, kill her off uh, as his revenge to the Doctor. Uh, really solid movie. Uh, when this thing came out, it was a huge hit. I forget the name of the director, and I apologize for that. Uh, when I did the show, I had all these notes written out. Just doing this like this, I'm just kind of breezing through it. But, like, these guys are going to work together like another, like, I don't know, a few more times. And I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, and forgive me if I am, I think they uh, would eventually do uh, The Hunchback and Notre Dame together, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the other interesting you know, footnote here is the producer of this film uh, was Samuel Goldwyn, who is, yes, that Goldwyn in MGM, Mayor Goldwyn Mayor. Uh, yeah, he was that guy. So it's funny that you know he did this film and then would go on to, you know, make MGM and, you know, all that. So I, don't know, I just thought that was kind of interesting as well. Uh, so anyways, yes, the the penalty, uh, it's number six. But I, if I'm being 100% honest, yeah, it's number one in my book, like, seriously. Um, this film has a, a 7.4 on IMDb, and uh, it does have an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. I had these little notes written down, so I guess I'm, I'm full of shit when I said I was just going to, uh, you know, wing this but uh yeah so anyways the penalty so at number five is a film called anita it's russian and it's about this uh, young girl who uh basically goes to this hypnotist who's not very good like it's a stage show and he's just kind of a bumbling idiot but he puts her under and bad things happen uh this movie was dreadful to get through it was really boring even the critics at the time uh said this was garbage uh this film would get remade a few years later and it would become a hit so, you know, we'll go more into that maybe down the road. But, yeah, this this film was just dreadful. But, you know, had more of a horror vibe than, you know, the penalty. So, it's number five. Uh, it currently has a 3.3 on a Rotten Tomatoes, if that tells you anything. So, or not Rotten Tomatoes, sorry, a 3.3 on a IMDb. So. so, that brings us now to uh, The Gollum. And that's number four, which people may be shocked that this is my number four and not higher on the list. Uh, and it's not it's not a bad film. I'll tell you right now, these, these films from here on out, they're not bad. It's just, I don't know, they, they hit me in different ways. And uh, I was so pumped to finally watch The Gollum because after hearing how great the first two were and they were kind of erased from history, I was like, all right, The Gollum. And I don't know, it's okay. I mean, I'm sure for its time it was fan-fucking-tastic, but watching it today, you're just kind of like, eh. It is what it is. The basic premise of the Gollum is um, this rabbi. So you got this like in in this ghetto, and they don't explain. I don't know who is the ones outside of it. I, I guess this is a, a German film, so I'm guessing like you know the Ottoman Empire, or maybe it is Germany now. I, I'm sorry, I'm not great on my history. Uh, it wasn't one of my strong suits. Sorry, uh, but anyways, um, the Jewish people, you know, living there, they're being persecuted and. It's getting to a point where, like, you know, the Germans... I'm going to say the Germans. I may be completely... It's, it probably isn't even the Germans because it's supposed to take place even further back. So, the Empire... We'll just say the Empire, like it's fucking Star Wars or something. The Empire is going to come down and basically uh, move all these Jews out of the ghetto and just kind of be like, hey, fuck off and go find your own area. And so, there's all this tension and a lot of fear in these neighborhoods. And so, this... The best way to describe me, I, mean, I guess he's like a magician... Uh, you know, the mad scientist with magic, uh, he creates this uh, figure out of clay, the golem, and he, uh, you, know, creates, you know, creates him to protect him against the empire. Or not just protect him, but protect, you know, his community. So that's the basic premise of this thing. Uh, so the funny thing about this is uh, Paul Wagner, who, uh, you know, he did the, the first, you know, golem, couple golems. He did another film too. I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, but, you know, he's a big-time director at this point in history, and he's turned out good stuff. And so uh, the thing is, though, the first movie he did, The Gollum, you know, it was more in vain of being a horror film, but they made him kind of water it down. They took a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff he wanted to do. They're just like, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, they, the articles I was reading didn't really specify what they made him cut down on, but either way... It was never the version of the Gollum he wanted to do, but nonetheless, it became a huge hit. And so they did a sequel, The Gollum and the Dancing Girl. Uh, they brought him back to direct it. Of course, he he did it, but again, they didn't want him to do his vision. In fact, the Gollum and the Dancing Girl, 
is more of a horror comedy. I mean, I guess more comedy. I don't know if they even had the phrase horror comedy back then, but I guess the fact that it's a monster and this little girl dancing, I don't know. And once again, I don't know what the movie's about at all. I just know that it was a hit when it came out. But again, it took away all the horror. I'm going to take a quick drink. So, more of a comedy. So, when it came time to do this third film... Apparently, he had enough stroke to be like, you know what? Fuck off. This is my movie, and we're taking it back to its roots. So, it's actually it's meant to be a prequel to the first film. But a lot of people say it's more or less just the remake. And at this point, since the other two films don't exist, it really is just its own standalone story. But he did. I guess he included it to make it more darker. And there are, you know, there's a couple kills in this thing. So, it's like, yeah, it is what it is, I guess. You know, it, it does classify as a horror film. Um, you know, it's very much what we'll see later on with Frankenstein. Uh, you know the golem. You know he's just he's a he's a misunderstood creature uh, who uh, you know comes. And the thing is, like you know, they unleash it accidentally because you know you're supposed to. If you don't, I don't know. If you don't shut him down, so it sounds weird to say it like that because he's just, he's made out of clay and words. But still, if you don't shut him down during like some kind of lunar cycle or something like that, um, he can go on a rampage and nothing can stop him. Right. Well, they say nothing can stop him. Something does stop him, but, you know, we'll get to that later. But anyways, uh, you know, the magician's about to do this because uh, shortly uh, before, you know, the Jews were going to be exiled from their village, uh, you know, the empire came down and they invited, you know, the magician to, like, a festival they were doing, and he puts on a magic show for them, and they love it. And they're just like, okay, you Jews are okay. We won't kick you out. So instead of just running home immediately and shutting the golem down, he just kind of procrastinates and then forgets to do it. And then the golem goes crazy and goes on a kill spree. Uh, throws one guy off a fucking building, uh, <laughs> which is batshit crazy. Um, so anyways, um, this film, uh, you know, beloved by everybody, is a 7, 7.2 on IMDb, and it has 100%. On Rotten Tomatoes, certified fucking fresh. So um, when it hit, when it came out, huge, massive hit as well. Uh, but just for me, like I said, I don't know. And maybe because I mean, again, it's just the way the story's told. But a lot of stuff you're just like, really, just do this or say the words now. Or it's funny because you know, spoiler alert: how he gets stopped in the end is he's got a little uh, the Star David thing in his chest. And it's the ambulance that has the word that was spoken into. And, like, the little girl, he goes to these kids. And it never really does say if he's going to hurt the kids or not. Like, I feel like he is almost like Frankenstein's monster. And he probably wouldn't have, you know, purposely hurt the kids. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened. But maybe it wouldn't have been, you know, completely out of anger. More of an accidental thing. But when he picks the girl up, the girl just grabs that star right out of him. And he just tumbles down. And that's the end of the movie. And then, like, the villagers show up like, oh, shit, thank God. Uh... Yep, saved the day. And that's what it was. Like, the, the, the magician kind of gets credit for it because he said a massive prayer right before that. And then when they find it, they're like, oh, hey, your words weren't. And he just like, he's like, yep, yes, they did. And that's the end of the movie. Oh, it's ridiculous. But nonetheless, it's number four. So we're going to get into uh, the top three right now. And in fact, the uh, in the top three, the bronze uh, skull will go to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, in fact, this isn't even the only Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to come out. I just didn't count the other one because I couldn't find a clear release date on it. But uh, apparently two of them came out the same year. And if you've been listening to the Retro Horror Academy, this movie's already been made like four or five times already. Uh, several times. A couple's been lost already to history. But we've already had uh, two of them, I believe, on this show already. Or in this segment already. So uh, here it is. This one is uh, gets the bronze. We all know the story by now. Dr. Jekyll, uh, in this version, he's purposely trying to make a formula that brings out your dark side. He believes every man has a dark side to him, and he wants to prove it. And, of course, when he brings his out, it's, you know, Mr. Hyde. And, of course, he's a murderer. Uh, this one, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. I really liked, uh, I forget, uh, the one that had King Baggett in it. I can't remember which year that was, but I, I like that one. But I don't know, this may be my favorite uh, Jekyll and Hyde from the silent era, anyways, uh, of the bunch. It has uh, John Barrymore, uh, grandfather of Drew Barrymore, as the the title character. And uh, I don't know, in this one, when it came out, uh, 
it had mixed review or a, kind of a mixed reaction, but a lot of people really praised his work. Like they all praised like John Barrymore as the character. The story itself was kind of hit or miss, they said, but they really liked John Barrymore as, you know, Mr. Hyde. Or I guess Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But anyways, um, yeah, I mean, this, like I said, I don't really know what to say about this one because I kind of already said everything about the other ones. I kind of agree. You know, I think his performance kind of makes this a step above the others. But, I mean, it's the same basic, you know, thing. He, you know, takes the elixir, starts, you know, wigging out, attacking others, trying to kill others, and then, you know, eventually they all come to him, and he ends up taking his own life, and that's the end of that, and there, there it is, Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde. Boom. Number three, easily. Uh, this thing had a uh, 7.0 on IMDb and a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. That don't sound very mixed at all, actually. That sounds like it's pretty, pretty high up there. So, either way, there you have it. That was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, so, the number two film... Uh, of 1920, or number two horror film in 1920, winner of the Silver Skull Award, movie called Genuine. Uh, this movie uh, was the film that basically, uh, oh, I'm blank on the guy's name, Werner Krauss, is that his name, Krauss? The, the director of uh, Dr., or sorry, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, well, he did this film as well, Genuine. And uh, this, he did it afterwards, and it always gets kind of overshadowed. I'll be honest with you, as a member of the Academy, I struggled not making this number one, because um, I like both films. I like Genuine, I like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I don't know, when I watched this one, I kind of dug it more initially, but then when I reflect back on it, I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I feel like Dr. Cal- or, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari just kind of deserves the golden one, just more for its thing. I don't know. Maybe it's controversial. Maybe it's controversial. Uh, this film plays out a lot like The uh, Student of Prague. Just this girl who uh, kind of puts, you know, she comes in, just everyone just falls for her. They all fall in love with her, and it leads to just the down, you know, downfall of, you know, this family, this uh, the town uh, kind of thing. I, but the look of the film, it's very, like I say, it's very much in that German expressionistic, you know, thing. Um, this movie isn't as well known, so you know it has a six point or sorry, a six point zero on uh, IMDb. Uh, doesn't even have a Rotten Tomato, so it's like uh, that's that you know is what it is. Uh, I definitely recommend this though. I think you go out of your way. There are multiple versions, uh, multiple runtimes because whenever this thing did get released uh, to a wider audience, because initially it was, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was considered lost for a while and when they found it they you know sent it out but then people kind of producers different uh, different producers cut it and yeah so you got different run times uh so there's like you know if, if you're not in something that long there's a short version on youtube i think the longer version is on uh, the internet archive if i'm not mistaken either way genuine number two and of course that leaves number one winner of the golden skull award the number one horror film in 1920 the cabinet of dr caligari Calgary is uh, the hypnotist that goes, you know, town to town with this, uh, I don't know what, Sombolus, is that how you pronounce that? I don't know what the fuck that is. They is a dude in a coma that he can just say things and wake the guy up and make him do his bidding. And, of course, he makes him commit murders for him because uh, Calgary is an evil guy. And Caesar's in a coma, so Caesar has to do what he says. Uh, so this is a film that you know, I really dug when I watched it for the first time. Uh, a lot of people hate the ending, which is the, it was all a dream, you know, this is all in the guy's head in a mental institution. I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much that years before I even watched uh, this film, I did a story, uh, wrote a script, never did, you know, do anything with it, but uh, basically at the very end of the thing, when all is bleak and you think our main characters are going to die, uh, it just cuts to this mental institution and you realize that Everybody who died was actually just other patients, uh, and then the uh, one of them was you know going to be a doctor or whatever. But you realize these all these people are inside this uh, mental institution, and I thought that was the most brilliant. And you got to remember, I was like I don't know eighteen or nineteen when I came up with this. I thought it was the most brilliant twist in the history of cinema. Yeah, remember I hadn't seen a whole lot that time, but I thought it was brilliant. And then when I go back and look at it, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. And then I watched this film like years later. Like, and, you know, the movie is, I mean, the script was pretty much just shelled. I didn't, you know, follow through with it. But when I watched this movie, I was like, oh, shit, they stole my idea. And I'm like, oh, shit, this thing came out like fucking years ago, like 80 plus years ago. 
God damn it, that I stole from them. So, uh, but thing is, like everybody hates that ending, and I'm like, I don't know. I think the ending's fucking brilliant. That's what I loved about it. Um, this one, like I said, it's very divisive. It's funny because when I'm reading everybody's like interviews and what people were saying about the film at the time, it's like it's all conflicting. Some people claim like you know that ending was tacked on because you know producers didn't like the idea that you know that the world would look this weird and you know out of it and you know can't have that you know make it in the you know the mind of a madman and then some people were just like no the script said that that was the ending all along i don't and it just seems like everything was just kind of contradictory if you get a chance look into this check it out the story i'm running a little long right now i just hit the uh past the hour right now so i'm gonna kind of wrap this up but yeah everybody just kind of has their own conflicting whatever about this movie i enjoy it uh but the Problem I have with this, and problem I have a lot of the early uh, silent films, though, and even the ones on this list that we just talked about today, with the exception of the, the penalty, they all, even if they run an hour, which some of them run longer than that, it just seems like there's a lot of filler. And it's, it's, I don't know. A lot of times I find myself bored about midway through until the action picks back up. And, uh, you know, Dr. Calgary is no exception there, but the look of the film's incredible. The storyline's awesome, and it's just, I don't know, it's really good. In fact, uh, big you know, if you're a big Rob Zombie fan, I remember, you know, I, I was a Rob Zombie fan before I saw this movie, so whenever I saw, you know, his video for Living Dead Girl, and then I see this movie, I'm like, oh, shit, that's where he got it from. I'm like, awesome. Um, this movie has an 8.1 on IMDb, and 99%, or, uh, yeah, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. This film made, like, I don't know, like, a little bit less than like four thousand dollars, but that's a lot back then in like you know nineteen twenty money. So I mean, it was it was a huge hit. It was a huge fucking hit. Still is to this day. I mean, people, you know, this is like one of the go tos when people get like public domain movies or you know when you got to have something to play in the background on your film and you don't want to pay royalties. This is one of the go tos. This Not Living Dead and uh, Found the Opera can't go wrong with any of those three. So. Anyways, that's it. I'm going to wrap up this first episode. If you were listening, thank you very much for uh, giving me your time. And, uh, yeah, I'll just catch you guys next week.